Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We are currently in our series, State of the Union. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to begin this morning by reading to you some recent U.S. headlines. These are from newspapers or periodicals from within the last 30 days. And I want to read the headline, and then I want to read a one sentence or one line out of the article that kind of summarizes the article. And here's what I want you to do as I read these headlines ripped from current events. I want you to answer the question, how do you feel when you hear these? What is the emotion that is stirred as you hear these headlines? Now, I don't want you to answer that out loud, all right? But I want you to think about it in your own heart. As I read these current headlines in the U.S., what, 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 what emotion is stirred? Here's the first one. U.S. surpasses Syrian refugee goal. Expects more next year. Here's the line. The United States has admitted 12,500 refugees from war-ravaged Syria over the past year and expects to admit even more next year. That was quoted in the Washington Post this month from the United States State Department. Here's a second headline. U.S. admits record number of Muslim refugees in 2016. This is from Pew Research Center this month. It says a total of 38,901 Muslim refugees entered the United States in fiscal year 2016, making up almost half, 46%, of the nearly 85,000 refugees who entered the country in that period. Here's the third one. Headline. Number of illegal immigrants in U.S. holds steady at 11 million. This was quoted in the Wall Street Journal recently. Here's the, 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 the line. The Border Patrol reports an increase in the number of illegal entries by what it calls OTMs, people from places other than Mexico. Central Americans constitute the largest group among them. Poverty and violence in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala continue to drive people north. Fourth headline. Nevada has highest proportion of illegal immigrants in U.S., this is reported by Reuters originally, and this study was also quoted in the Review Journal here recently. Here's the quote. Nevada has the highest proportion of illegal immigrants in any U.S. state at 7.6% of its population. In addition to having the highest proportion of illegal immigrants per capita, Nevada also has the largest share of them in its workforce 
at 10%. Now, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with any of the headlines I just read for you. What I'm saying is those are current headlines in current newspapers in the United States here locally in Las Vegas within the last 30 days. And what I want you to think about is what do you feel when you hear them? Some people hear those headlines and what they feel is fear. They're afraid. Some people hear those headlines and the emotion that is stirred is anger. Some people hear those headlines and the emotion that is stirred is one of despair. For some, it's frustration. For some, it's compassion. For some, it's conflicted. And on top of what you feel when you hear those headlines, here's another question I want you to think about. How do you filter that information into your life? You see, with information like what we've looked at this morning, all of us have a filter by which we receive that into our personal experience. And for some of us, that filter is simply personal experience. It's your past experience that you've had that causes you to filter this information into your life a certain way. For others of you, it's, it's a filter of politics. It's a political platform or, or being raised in a certain worldview from a political standpoint. And the way you hear that, the way you filter these headlines into your life, because depending on the political party you're from in the United States of America, each of these headlines can be filtered very differently. For some, it's your upbringing, the way that you were raised. It's your background. It's the culture that you come from. And here's what I want you to, to note as we, we begin to talk about this this morning. This that we're reading in these headlines is not just a reality in our nation. It's not just a reality in our city. It's a reality in our church. We have 45 different languages that we know of spoken in our fellowship. 45. That's a lot of different language groups in one church. But that we know of, that we can count, and, and that's the ones we... There, there are probably more we don't know about. But 45 that we know of, that people have a first language that is not English, 45 different ones in our fellowship. This is a reality. Our church is a church that has many immigrants and refugees that are a part of our fellowship. How do you filter that information, and how do you feel when you hear it? Here's another question. Does the Bible have anything to say about how we should respond to immigrants and refugees as followers of Jesus, or is this just a conversation for politics? Is this just a political situation? Last weekend, 
we began a new series at Hope that we've called State of the Union. When culture and the gospel intersect. And I told you last weekend at Hope, we are not on a political mission. Okay? That's a good place to say amen. All right. I know with these topics that I'm going to address between now and over the next four or five weeks, I kind of sense that there's a lot of people listening kind of holding their breath a little bit because you're just not sure what I'm going to say and where we're going to go with some of this stuff. Um, but, but that's a good place to say amen. We, we are not on a political mission at Hope. There you go. We're not. We got something. We, we have a much greater calling than that. But because our church is such a reflection of our culture because our church is so multicultural and because we're a genuine melting pot of our society from both background, culture, political, experiential fields, it's important that we establish some biblical filters so that when we hear all of this information, when we're trying to process all that's being swirled around us, We have a a biblical worldview, a biblical filter through which to interpret this into our lives. And last weekend, we began with a foundational truth. We asked the question last weekend, who am I? I want to put the foundational truth back up, and I want you to read it out loud with me. Above all else, who I am is who I am in Christ. Listen, if you missed last weekend, you must go online and watch that to get in on where we're going because if you don't get this, you're not going to have the filter to interpret anything else that we talk about. Here's what this means. Above all else, I'm not an American. Above all else, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. Above all else, I'm not black or white or brown or something else. Above all else, who I am is who I am in Christ. Our identity is who we are in Christ. And until we get there, we will never have the right filter as children of God to interpret all of this information. But if that's true... Then we need to unpack some other stuff in our lives and and establish some more filters. So here's the question that's, that's very important that I want us to unpack this weekend. How do I see the peoples of the earth? Let me give you a defining statement I want to put up on the screen. Immigrants and refugees are not problems. They are people made in the image of God. Now listen. Immigrants and refugees are not problems. They are people made in the image of God. Let me show you something in the Bible. Turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 13. I want you to see something. Listen to what he says. For you, the psalmist is here looking at the Lord. For you, Lord, formed my inward parts. You wove me 
in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Here's, here's a biblical filter I want to give you as we think about this issue. Here's a biblical filter right out of these verses that I want to put up on the screen. By God's sovereign design, from the womb, every human life is precious and filled with purpose. By God's sovereign design, every human life from the womb, he says, before I was even formed, you saw every day that was ordained for me. Every human life is precious and filled with God's purpose. Now, now let me say a couple things about this. First of all, Every human life from the womb. He here talks about God's creative activity in the womb of that mother. Can I just say to you that as I watched this week the debate between the two primary candidates running in this election. Can I just say to you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I was both disgusted and discouraged I was disgusted by one platform that devalued human life in the womb. And I was discouraged by another platform that did not even know why it matters. God said that every human life in the womb is valuable because he created it, because he designed it, because he brought it into existence, and before it's even born, he already knows the days that are ordained for that child. But listen to me. As Christians, pro-life means more than simply life in the womb. I think sometimes as evangelicals we have been hypocritical in our passion to be pro-life, but we're only pro-life in one slice of the broader issue of the value and dignity of humanity that God created and brought into existence. When we read these verses, Psalm 139 is not just true about American life. 
Psalm 139 is true of Mexican life and Colombian life and Syrian life and Iranian life and African life and Chinese life and Japanese life and Korean life and Vietnamese life. Listen, it's true of every life. God created life. When he writes here that we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God's sovereign design from the womb, every human life is precious. The Bible says his thoughts towards them are precious and he has a purpose for them that was ordained before they were even born. So with all the talk currently about Immigrants and refugees, the peoples of the world, how do you and I respond? What's our approach as followers of Jesus? Well, there are actually two biblical responses, and I want to give them to you this morning. Here's the first one. God has given government a responsibility. God has given government a responsibility. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about government in a couple of weeks, all right? So I'm going to kind of go through this really quickly this morning because i got some other stuff I want to say to you. But we're going to come back and talk some more about the biblical function of government. But let me just at least say this much today. And, and, And as American Christians, please hear this statement. There is no biblical form of government. I think as Americans sometimes, we think capitalism and democracy is in the Bible. Now, some of you are shocked because just me saying that, you, you, you thought it was. <laughs> Listen, when you think about capitalism and democracy, at best, when you think about world history, we're a relatively new experiment. That world history is still waiting to see how it's going to turn out. We're just a kid on the block. We're new. There's no biblical form of government. But there is a biblical function of government. That can take on many different forms. But there's a biblical function of government. And there's a biblical response that you and I are to have to government. Let me read it to you. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. Everybody all right so far? I told you some of this is going to stretch us. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Just saying, it's what it says. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. The verses I'm reading right now, you've got to understand, the government that he was writing in the midst of in Romans 13 made ours look like a cupcake. In Romans 13, Christians were being lifted up on poles and set on fire to light the streets of Rome. Christians were being thrown in the middle of the Colosseums and eaten by lions. And with biblical integrity, he writes, every person 
It's to be in subjection to governing authorities. We're going to talk about this more in a few weeks. Let me read it. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Let that be a filter by which you wake up on November the 9th. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Mm. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, talking about governing authority, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Not a lot of woohoo, amen, praise the Lord when you read those four verses, right? But hey, here's what we got to get the Bible is not a buffet where you pick what you like and spit out what you don't. It's the Bible, it's the Word of God, meaning we have to filter it all into our lives because it's His divine truth. And let me just give you a summary statement. We're going to come back and unpack this in a couple of weekends. But God established government as an authority to serve good by executing justice. God established government as an authority to establish good by executing justice. God established the principle of governing authority. Here's what that means. It was God's idea. So get this. My attitude towards government in principle is really a reflection of my attitude towards God and His infinite wisdom. Did you hear that? We don't throw out parenting as a principle because there's some bad parents. You cannot throw out governing authority as a principle because there's some bad examples throughout history. God, in his infinite sovereign wisdom, established governing authority to establish good by executing justice. The Bible here calls government an avenger. An avenger is one who executes right and justice by punishing evil and bringing about what is right. Government exists to punish those who break the law and to protect and defend those who abide by the law. That's the purpose of government. And God gave government that mission. If we don't like that mission, we need to take it up with God, not government. Now, this establishes that, get this, this is important. The mission of government is to first serve its own citizens by protecting and defending them. That's the mission of government, as ordained by God. Now, how government does this is a complex issue. Obviously. Otherwise, this would be like Christmas right now. But it's not like Christmas right now because it's a complex issue. There's a lot of division. Listen, it's a complex issue even for Christians. 
complex. But Russell Moore, who's president of the ERLC that represents our denomination, he had this great statement. I thought about it. Listen to what he said. He said, whatever our disagreements on immigration policy, we as the body of Christ are those who see every human life as reflecting the image of God. The gospel doesn't fill in for us the details of how we can simultaneously balance our border security and respect for human life in this case. But the gospel does tell us that our instinct ought to be one of compassion towards those in need, not disgust or anger. That's our responsibility. Now, when it comes to government and their response to this issue, here's our responsibility as Christians. As God's people, according to the system of government that we have in America, this wouldn't be true if you were preaching in other places, but in America, our responsibility is to elect representatives at all levels of government, local, state, and national, that we think best demonstrate our values on this issue as believers. But in saying that, let me say this, it's okay to differ somewhat. And you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to have to realize when it comes down to issues like this, there are going to be good and godly people who differ. But here's the key. You and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, must approach this issue with great grace towards others and extending grace to them as we have these conversations. We can't be militant. We can't be angry. We can't be pushy. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to have open, honest conversation. We need to hear other perspectives. We need to take that to the Lord in prayer. And then we must vote in such a way that we think best represents the values that we understand in Scripture and our values as followers of Jesus for the government to do what God gave the government to do, which is protect and defend its citizens and to execute justice and to serve its people. That's why God gave government. That's government's responsibility. But we have a greater responsibility. This is where I want to spend the bulk of my time this morning. God has also given the church a responsibility. And our responsibility as the church is different from the responsibility of the government. Let me show you how in a statement. Put put the next statement up on the screen. I said this a moment ago. The mission of government is to first serve its own, right? But look at this. The mission of the church is to first serve others. And here's what many in the church are doing with this issue of immigration and refugees. They are allowing the mission of government to be their only filter in looking at this issue. And as the church, we have a higher calling and a greater responsibility. Our mission is not to first protect and serve ourselves. Our calling is first to serve others. That's why we got to have a balanced biblical filter. It is true. Government has a responsibility. But as Christians, 
the church, we have a responsibility. And we have to take a holistic view as we approach this as followers of Jesus. We can't just jump on either side. We have to look at both sides of this. And listen, here's why it's complex. Both of these are biblical. Government has a responsibility to protect and defend its own. But the church has a responsibility to first serve others. And we got to navigate through this. So, so let me give you two biblical principles that drive our responsibility as the church. Here's the first one. You ready for this? God loves the people of the world. Say that out loud with me. God loves the people of the world. When I hear some Christians talking about this issue, I believe we've forgotten this. God loves the peoples of the world. Let me read it to you. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A few words I want to point out in that verse. Number one is the word loved. Say that word out loud. God loved the world. That word love in the New Testament exclusively describes a love that is of and from God. Anytime this word is used in the New Testament, it's always talking about God's love, and it describes a love that is a sovereign choice to find one's joy in something. Here's what that means. God didn't love me because I was lovable. I know some of you find that really hard to believe. But God didn't love me because I was lovable. God didn't even love me because I loved him. God didn't love me because I was a good person. Because the reality is none of those things were true. I wasn't lovable. I didn't love him. I'd sinned against him. I wasn't a good person. And yet God in his sovereignty chose to love me and find his joy in me. And the same thing is true about every one of you. You didn't love God. You weren't seeking God. But God in his grace chose to love you and sovereignly made you the object of his joy. God loved us. God created human beings to be the object of his great love. The reason God made us was to love us. Wow! And if that's not enough, read this word. So. That's a word we just read right over. Remember when your kids were little and you'd say, hey, I love you. You know how much I love you? I love you this much. What is that? It's a phrase describing the degree, the extent. 
You know what that is? It's a little article in the Greek New Testament that describes degree and extent. It's God saying, I don't just love you. I love you this much. He could have just said, for God loved the world. But he said, for God so loved the world. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know something. You may not be looking for him, but let me tell you something. He's looking for you. He loves you in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done. And he not only loves you, he gave his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be born again into relationship with him and experience all the fullness of his love. But listen, don't get so caught up in the amazing love of God that we miss a very important word. What's that word? World. You see, I think sometimes we hear that God loves the world, and we think that means God loves white Americans and black Americans and brown Americans and Asian Americans. But what that means is that God loves Yemenis and Syrians and Pakistanis and Zambians and Nigerians and Filipinos and Egyptians and Vietnamese and Indonesians. Listen, just as much as he loves Americans. This radical demonstration of the love of God didn't start in Washington, D.C. It started in Jerusalem. We've allowed our worldview to be falsely shaped that somehow we are the center of the story. We are not the center of the story. Matter of fact, we don't even get a mention in the book. God loves the peoples of the world. And when we're talking about this issue, we're talking about People who God loves and who God gave his son for and who God said in his word, I love them so much. And yet so much vocabulary and verbiage is not reflective of that. And get this, his great love is reflected in our great mission. He said, go and make disciples of all the what? Nations. It's the Greek word ethnos. It describes a people group. Why is our mission to take the gospel to every people group on planet earth? Because God loves all the peoples of the world. Did you know that because of immigration and refugees, look at this statistic, more unreached people groups live within the boundaries of the United States of America, 361 of them, than in any other country besides India and China. Ever thought about that? (laughs) Has it ever crossed your mind that maybe God and his sovereignty has made us a nation of immigrants and refugees for the sake of finishing his global mission? Why would he do that? Because God loves the peoples of the world. He's not about old glory. He's about his glory. 
1970s, there was a government overthrow in a nation in Southeast Asia. One of the men who worked in that government had to flee with his family as a refugee. In the early 1970s, their family was accepted by the United States of America when it was a very hostile environment towards people from Southeast Asia. Planted in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, this man, his wife, and their children. One of their children was a little elementary school age boy. That little boy was put into this government housing project with his family, and none of them spoke English. There was a church that began to go into that government housing project and minister to this family and other families that had been relocated and settled there. Started picking up those kids and taking them to church with them on Sundays. That little refugee boy that was ridiculed and persecuted by many in America because coming from Southeast Asia in the 1970s wasn't a popular thing. Gave his life to Jesus in that church after months of that church reaching out to that family. He grew up in America, graduated high school, college. God began to convict him to go back to his home people in Southeast Asia and take the gospel. Made a trip back and led his Buddhist grandfather to Christ. And his grandfather gave him a large tract of land there. His, his grandfather was one of the leaders in the village and in the region where he was from. Led him to Christ. He gave him this large tract of land. He established a ministry center on that. He came back to America, graduated from seminary, went back there. And for the last 10 years, we at Hope Church have been partnering with that young man. And we've seen in the last 10 years over 1,000 house churches planted among unreached people groups all over Southeast Asia. How did it start? He came here as a refugee. Has it ever crossed your mind that God in his sovereignty has allowed us to be a nation of immigrants and refugees for the purpose of accomplishing the glorious, redemptive, eternal mission of God? Listen, when we see that, let me tell you what that is. That's a filter. But here's a second biblical principle that drives this filter. God desires to manifest his love to the people of the world through me. For God so loved the peoples of the world. For God so loved the world. How do they know? Let me tell you how they know. They know through you and me. We say this at Hope all the time. The Christian life is not you and me living for Jesus. If you think that's the Christian life, you've missed out on the essence of the Christian life. The Christian life is not you and me living for Jesus. The Christian life is Jesus living his life in and through us. That's Christianity. And if his life is being lived through us, what does that look like? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul's writing and he gives us an example. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's a nine-dimensional configuration of the person of Jesus. But I want you to look how it starts. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Here's what that means. The first obvious evidence of his life in me is his love through me towards others. Our society and specifically our political rhetoric puts people in categories today. Immigrants, refugees, citizens, Mexicans, Muslims... But the Bible gives us some different categories, and I want to close with these. And here's what's interesting. In all of these categories, the Bible says our response is love. Here's the first one. Love one another. Say that out loud. 
love one another. Let me read it to you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Look what it says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is, say it out loud. Every time in the New Testament the Bible uses this phrase, one another, it's a reference to brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's another question. Has it ever crossed your mind that some, many of these refugees and immigrants are actually your brothers and sisters in Christ already? Listen to this stat from the Pew Research Center. Christians make up a majority of legal immigrants to the United States, 61%. And unauthorized immigrants, by contrast, come primarily from Latin America and the Caribbean, and the overwhelming majority of them, an estimated 83%, are Christian. Now, all this talk we got about refugees and immigrants, love one another. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. How are we going to answer that on the day we stand before him? Now, I get that when organizations like this use their qualification for Christian, their filter is not exactly what ours would be. This means that many of them just simply claim a form of Christianity, which could even be Catholicism or something else. But listen, here's the point. Many of them are already believers, and a majority of them are open to the reality of the gospel. And the biblical response we're to have is to love one another. Now, some would argue and say, well, why would Christians come into another country illegally? Why would that happen? Let me give you some insight. Did you know that 34,000 people per day are forced to leave their homes as refugees? Because of violence, war, destruction. 34,000 people a day around the world. Here's what that means. Every 58 days, the population of Las Vegas is forced to leave their home as a refugee. As a Christian, am I called to obey the laws of the government? Yes. As a Christian, am I called by God as a husband and father to protect and provide for my family? Yes. What do you do when those two biblical principles collide? I'm not saying I got the answer. I'm just saying there's a lot of the world's population. That's where they live. There's a collision between obeying and submitting to governing authority and providing and protecting for your family. And that's a hard place to be. And it's easy for us to sit in our suburbs and not speak with a heart of compassion about 34,000 people every day that are being forced to drag their families out of their homes because of violence, destruction that they didn't ask for, they didn't want, they don't want to be a part of that, but they simply were born there. Now again, I don't want to blanket the issue. I know it's complex. I'm just saying we've got to see it from all sides. We're to love one another. We're to, here's the second category, love your neighbor. Remember the story in the Gospels? Man comes to Jesus. What's the great commandment? Jesus said, Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your might, and you're to love your neighbor as what? Yourself. And so he said, hey, then who's my neighbor? And Jesus told him the story of the Good Samaritan. We don't have time to read it. 
But you know the story. The only guy who helped him was the Samaritan who was supposed to hate him because he hated him. Jesus said, that's your neighbor. The principle is this. Loving your neighbor is demonstrating generous, compassionate care to those who are in need. Not just my brothers and sisters in Christ. Muslims, Hindus, atheists, Sikhs, whatever it may be. I'm to love my neighbor. And get this. This is not just a principle and a parable. It's an imperative. Let me show it to you in Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Look what it says. Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect. Now in the Greek text, that's a command. Meaning he's not laying this on the table as an option to consider. It's an imperative. Do not neglect what? To show hospitality to strangers. This word stranger comes from the Greek word xenos, which we get our English concept of foreigner or alien. Somebody who's from another country or another people but is among us. He said, do not neglect. Don't you dare neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Look what he said. For by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. As followers of Jesus, when we see immigrants and refugees in need, we are commanded to demonstrate the love of Jesus with practical kindness. I know there's a lot of talk out there today about Syrian refugees, but hear me. Of the 11,000 Syrian refugees that have been allowed into our country in the last 12 months, 80% of them are children. They're children. Boys and girls. Children. We're to love our neighbor. Here's the third category, and I gotta, I gotta wrap up. We're to love our enemy. Love you, love one another, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Matthew chapter 5 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let me just say this. If if we're to love our enemies, surely we're to love immigrants and refugees that aren't our enemies. But even if they are as the church, (laughs) we're to love them anyway. You say, I don't know if I can do that. Guess what? You're right. You and I can't. But aren't you glad that we have a God who lives within us, who has the capacity to love his enemies? Because if he didn't, he would have never loved me. You see, in my sin, I was an enemy of God. But God loved me anyway. And he desires to demonstrate that kind of a radical love through us to others. I'll close with this quote. David Platt, my good friend, president of the International Mission Board, said, followers of Christ must see immigrants not as problems to be solved, but as people to be loved. Let's pray. God, help us See the peoples of the world like you see them. 
God, I understand that today a lot of what I've shared is not popular in American populism. But Lord, we must be people of your book. Lord, I I confess the complexity of this issue because there is a government side and there is a church side. Lord, it's complex. But God, we ask you today for wisdom. As you pray there, before we stand and sing a song of worship to close our time together and really seek the Lord, I want you to wrestle with this question. How do you show people, specifically refugees and immigrants, how do you show them that we love them? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, attitudes we display. Does your attitude reflect the love of Jesus towards immigrants and refugees? Number two, the words that we say. Do the words that you choose to use surrounding this reality demonstrate the radical love of Jesus? And number three, the actions we take. Do the actions that I take reveal the love of Jesus through practical demonstrations of kindness? just a moment we're going to stand and sing a song of worship it's an opportunity for us to respond these altars are going to be open here at the front if you want to come and just be alone with God and pray maybe God's put something on your heart you just want to come and seek God you can come just be alone with him we have pastors here at the front if you have a burden on your heart you'd like for us to pray with you or for you you come we'll pray for you if you don't know Jesus today listen hear me God has set his love his amazing love on you If you don't know Jesus, you slip out from where you're seated in just a moment. Come to one of these pastors and just say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. As God speaks in this moment, you respond, Lord, have your way. God, we ask you to speak to us right now. Lord, I know that this is tough truth for us to process, but God, give us the grace. Give us the ears to hear. May we be a people of this book. Lord, we love you today. We worship you today. We bless you today. Holy Spirit, right now, would you move among us? It's in the name of Jesus we pray.